So there's a uh, Irish folk band that's uh, been around. They've been around since the 1960s, early 60s. They're called the Wolf Tones. I'm sure some of you have heard of them. Um, they play traditional music, mostly ballads, um, mostly rebel songs. Um, they write, they sing about, and they write about uh, the troubles. Um, Ireland's, but Ireland's fight for independence over hundreds of years. I've seen them in concert uh, a bunch of times. I was, I was trying to count. I mean, it's probably nine or ten times over the years. They've got a song called, uh, the name of it is uh, Joe McDonald. It was written by uh, this group, the Wolf Tones. And uh, Joe McDonald was a, a member of the Irish Republican Army back in the 1970s. He died of starvation in a British prison in Northern Ireland. He was one of uh, a group of 10, in fact, who went on to hunger strike. Uh, Ten of these IRA, imprisoned IRA soldiers died in 1981. Uh, their fight, the reason for the hunger strike, was that they wanted to be treated uh, as political prisoners, not as common criminals. Um, there's a distinction. Uh, the rules are different. If you're a, uh, if you have political prisoner status. You're not treated exactly the same as you are if you're a, a regular criminal. You don't have to wear prison uniforms, and some of the rules are different, a little bit less restrictive. You're sort of more like a, like a prisoner of war. Anyway, um, the British refused to allow that, so they stopped eating in protest. And like I said, 10 of them ultimately starved to death. Uh, if you're old enough, you probably remember. It was a pretty big story when it happened. Terrible story. I remember being at one of these concerts and uh, hearing that song for the first time. And, you know, like I said, I, I, you know, I kind of knew vaguely about this story and some of these people. But this guy, Joe McDonald, I didn't know anything about. So I kind of was curious. I looked him up afterwards. He was married. He had two kids. And I remember thinking, how could you starve yourself to death? Like, just physically and psychologically, how could you do that? I have a tough time fasting on Good Friday. You know, I find it tough when I have to go for blood work and the night before, from 12, from midnight before, I'm not allowed to eat anything and I'm like, oh, bouncing off the walls. I go get my blood work as early as possible so that I can then have something to eat. But this guy died after 61 days of not eating. And I remember just being struck with like that question, like why would you do this? And I understand why they were in prison and their desire for and their fight for, for independence. 
I mean, we did, we did the same thing 200 years before against the same country. But that way, a hunger strike, I just couldn't wrap my brain around that. I still can't, I think, in a lot of ways. I remember I, uh, I did a report in college. I, I think it was my senior year. I uh, did a report on these hunger strikers. I guess it was a history class. So I got to learn a little bit more about some of these players and the issues. But I kept kind of this whole, well, why would you do that question kind of kept coming back. And eventually it was answered. I mean, some of these guys were interviewed. Why they did what they did. The hunger strike. And it was real simple. They said that they needed to be heard. The world needed to hear about the injustice they had experienced and that was going on. And this was a way for people to hear. And the things that we'll do in order to be heard. I also remember when I was in college uh, taking a course, this had to be a English course, literature course, and I remember reading a little bit, reading from uh, Flannery O'Connor. She was the, uh, some of you I'm sure read some of her stuff. She was a great writer. She was a, uh, wrote some novels, but wrote more, more short stir stories, more known for the short stories, 1950s and 60s. She was from the South. She usually wrote about the South. She was very Catholic. Catholic uh, themes were always present in her stories. And her style was very unique. It was very dark, kind of graphic, harsh, almost kind of gothic. She just wrote about dark people and dark places at a dark time. And anyway, she was, uh, I mean, she's considered a great writer, but she also had her critique, uh, critics, people who thought it was too dark, too harsh, too graphic. She responded to them. This is what she said. This is why she was as dark as she was. She said, when you assume that your audience holds the same beliefs that you do, then you can relax and use more normal means of expression. But when your audience doesn't share those beliefs, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout. For the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. You need to get people's attention. It's kind of what those IRA guys were saying. How do you get people to listen? I'm thinking of the, the scene, one of, my, one of my favorite movies is The Untouchables. Sean Connery and Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro's in it. And there's a great scene with uh, Sean Connery. He plays this street smart cop in Chicago and he's, he's working with Kevin Costner. He's, uh, he's Elliot Ness 
and they're going after uh, Al Capone and they're failing and he's frustrated. So Sean Connery pulls uh, Costner into this church and he tells him what you need to do in order to get Capone. He says, you want to get Capone? If they pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. Then you'll get their attention. I mean, it's this Flannery O'Connor thing. To the hard of hearing, you have to shout. It's really this first reading tonight from Genesis, this crazy reading from Genesis. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, this sort of perverted test. And I think we, we often misread this story. It's like we get distracted by the darkness of it, a little bit like those critics of Flannery O'Connor. I think most of us, when we hear this story about God and Abraham and you need to go kill, your sacrifice your son, we kind of get off track because we focus too much on God. And I understand why. Because we can't make sense of it. How and why would God ask anybody to do that? And we all know the story ends, it ends okay. God relents. Abraham doesn't have to kill his son at the last minute. But how sick is that? Like, why would God subject anybody to that kind of a trial? But the story's not about God. The story's about us and how we are relative to God, how we are toward God. The story's about Abraham, not God. It's about Abraham's faith. And I think it's God's way of getting our attention because this is a big deal. He wants us to hear this. And sometimes you have to shout when the people are hard of hearing. Well, if that's true, and I think it is, what does he want us to hear? What's God yelling about? I think it's kind of simple. He's saying, I need to be number one. I need to be your first priority. Abraham, I know you love your son Isaac, <clears throat> but I need you to love me even more. That's why we get this insane story where he's asked to choose between God and his kid. And again, we know ultimately he didn't have to. The point of it is put God first. You know, St. Augustine said, um, love God first and everything else for the sake of God. Love God first and everything else you love for the sake of God. Problem is, and I think the challenge for us is, when the everything else that we love gets in the way of our love for God, when the everything else begins to compete with God. And I think that's what he's yelling about. 
Because that's where we get tripped up. That's where we make our mistakes. Something else, someone else in my life trumps God. And when we do that, well, that's usually, usually that's sin. When we do that, trouble. You know, when my career really becomes the most important thing in my life, and everybody else pays a price, because that becomes God, and I'll do whatever I have to to win in that realm. Recognition, being accepted. When walk into a high school cafeteria and, and, and consider the number of kids in that cafeteria for whom being accepted is most important. That's God. That's their God. And they'll do whatever it takes to be included. You know, it's the kid who can't lose. The kid who's like a competitive nut. He's so competitive that when he starts to lose, he cheats. He'll do whatever it takes to win. Because winning is God for that kid. Once in a while, next door in the school, and I remember this when I used to work in a high school, Every once in a while, you'll hear from a teacher who talks about how refreshing it is because they just had a conversation with a parent because the kid was in, got caught. The kid was in trouble for something. Some infraction, the kid is now being punished or disciplined. And the response of the parent is, thank you. You know, they're, they're embarrassed, they're upset, they're frustrated with their kid but they take none of it out on the parent. They're like, thanks for letting me know, I'll, I'll deal with it. And that's the exception, that's not the norm. The norm is, well, my kid didn't do that. You must have misunderstood. I believe my kid. And this parent places their kid above God's truth. And they're not serving their kid in the process. I remember hearing this, reading this story about a terrible story. This, uh, there was a drunk driver and he killed uh, these two kids, these two teenagers. They were out on the walking one, you know, at night. This guy who had a, had a record, had a drinking problem, had issues with drunk driving before, hit these two kids and killed them. It was a hit and run. So he took his car and he, uh, there was a serious dent in his car from hitting these two people. So he pulled the car into the garage and then he, shortly after that, he pulled it out, went over to a remote area and drove the car into a tree to create a, a new dent that would disguise the original. But this guy's father was on to him because this wasn't the first time. It was a symptom of other, other problems. So he questioned him, and he knew he was lying. So he turned him in. Called the cops. And he was arrested. Man, would you do that? Would you put your kid over the truth? Would you put the truth over your kid? 
Would you try for some combination of both? Well, if we read this story tonight, I think as it was intended, it would be like, I, no, I, my kid isn't God. My kid can't be number one. I remember somebody describing it as this, like, we need to give God access to every part of our lives. You know, we're all okay with God gets some access to parts of us, but most of us don't, aren't really willing to give full disclosure, let God in everywhere, no secrets. Remember there was a, uh, an episode of uh, Seinfeld where George, George Costanza, he's engaged and his fiancee asks him for his ATM card, for the uh, password for his ATM card, and he won't give it to her. He doesn't want anybody to know his ATM code. He won't give her access. Well, George Costanza is an idiot, right? Is there a little bit of George Costanza in all of us? God wants access to us. And we hesitate because it's a re- like, it means we're going to relinquish, I don't know, authority, control, comfort. You know, when we, when we make God number one, it seems to me we properly order our life. But when we don't, when we love someone or something more than God, we're just not at our best. Even good things like our kids and our job. And the things that we love to do, they're not bad things, they're good things. But if we place them over God, then it gets messed up. Our lives are no longer properly ordered. You know, you ever have, this happened to me not too long ago, you know, when you're wearing a, you know, you're wearing a, sh- a shirt and I, um, you button it wrong, where like you're, you know, it's in the morning and you're just not looking and you're distracted or whatever and you, you take the first button and you put it in the, ho- the second hole on the other side. So as a result, everything's kind of off. And the bottom of the shirt on one side is sort of like hanging lower than the other side. Everything's a bit off. It's not lined up right. I was a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, I was walking around all day with the shirt like that, and I didn't know it. I came back here, and somebody in the rectory said, your shirt's messed up. And I looked down, and I was like, oh, man, I've been walking around all day, talking to tons of people, looking like a slob, because the shirt wasn't right. So what do you have to do? You have to unbutton it, and then redo it. You know what I think Lent is? It's God's way, it's the church's way of telling us your buttons aren't lined up right. So redo it. And I'm not talking about fashion. I'm not talking about shirts, obviously. It's this Flannery O'Connor thing, to the heart of hearing you shout. What's he shouting at each of us? I mean, this first reading, for sure, God's got to be number one. And he's probably shouting other things our way, too, individually. I need to hear something. 
that I've been evading or ignoring. Let's, let's presume this. To God, from God's perspective, we are hard of hearing. So he has to shout. What's he saying? 